Hey, hey, it's Damon. I've shared here before that I really appreciate and enjoy getting the feedback from listeners about the Who Am I Really podcast. Earlier this week, I got an email from a new listener named George who told me that he's been binge listening to the show, pushing through his deep emotions as he connects with the stories of other adoptees, and he wishes he had found this podcast sooner. George said, your stories have brought him catharsis, and he's not the only person to share that sentiment with me. I'm so thankful for every guest who comes on to open up about their adoption experience because people like George and hopefully thousands of other people I will never hear from are getting something from every story. So this is your reminder to take one simple action. If you like the Who Am I Really podcast, please take a quick moment in your podcast platform to leave a five-star review. There are tons of other adoptees birth parents and adoption allies who need to find this resource and your ratings really do help others to find the podcast too okay i hope you're ready let's go I think my first kind of reaction was i was just in disbelief like i'm a nice person i can't believe you don't want to get to know me and i think the next feeling all in quick succession was kind of incredulous and hurt like it's been over 40 years get over it not a very feeling comment for sure and then i felt really sad and guilty because again one of the reasons i never searched was i didn't want to disrupt her life and here i felt like i totally just did that Who am I? 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 This is Who Am I Really? A podcast about adoptees that have located and connected with their biological family members. I'm Damon Davis, and today you're about to meet Nina. She called me from Minatrista, Minnesota. Nina felt nothing but love in her adoptive family, so much so that she wore her adoption as a badge of honor. Early in her life, her adoptive father shared identifying information about her, and coupled with the birth of her children, Nina could no longer push down her desire to search. Nina's search did not turn out the way that she had hoped at all, but she says she tries to move forward from a place of empathy for everyone involved in her origin story. This is Nina's journey. Nina was born in Michigan, then placed with her adoptive parents at 11 days old. Her parents were in their 30s at the time, and they had one biological son, six years older than herself. When Nina was two years old, her dad got a job as a professor at the University of Madison, Wisconsin. It was Nina's understanding that her mom was glad for the move because it created some separation between where Nina was born and their family. Nina has always known she was adopted, and she's always felt proud and lucky for her adoption. She held adoption as a badge of honor, freely sharing with her friends that adoption was how her family was formed. I do kind of recall being a small kid, maybe three, and sitting at the kitchen table with my mom, and she must have been talking to me about being adopted. And I remember her saying, and this sounds horrible, but let me explain, I said to her, so you mean a garbage truck comes and says, give me your baby. And of course, she was absolutely horrified and dispelled that immediately. 
but in my mind, it was this bright yellow, shiny, clean, like kids toy truck with one of those faces on it where the eyes move and the big smile and it's blue skies and green trees and kids playing in the street. And to me, it was exciting and happy. It wasn't how it sounds when I when I said that. Yeah, you associated with it a, with a toy, right? It was you were three. You yeah, know? I could see. Yeah, kids say the darndest things, and that's totally forgivable that you associated the trash truck in your community and and the toy that you had with something kind of cool and fun. So that's it. Sounds right. terrible as an adult, but yeah, it's it's funny. Yeah, but as a kid, it was great. So I had a very loving family. I always felt like I belonged. I remember just a few years ago, my brother and I had dinner with a man who had an adopted child, and he said, we always treated him like he was one of our own, one of the family. And I said to my brother later, wow, I wasn't treated like one of the family. I was one of the family. Like, I don't even know how to make that distinction, but to me, it's it's huge, and maybe it's just mindset. But I was always introduced as their daughter, their sister. They never mentioned being adopted. I was the one who always mentioned it, but always in a very favorable light. Mm. You know, at times I may have felt like I didn't quite fit. They were very intellectual and I didn't feel smart. However, I went on and got a master's degree myself. My father was of Jewish heritage, so my brother carries some of those traits. My mother was not. People would sometimes say I look like my mother and I, I think I would say, well, that's nice, but actually I'm adopted. Like, just because I don't have the Jewish traits doesn't mean I look like her. But for the most part, I always felt like I fit, and I certainly always felt like I belonged. Mm -hmm. What was your, you've detailed that they seemed more intellectual and you didn't feel like you were quite in that same ilk. What was your inclination? Are you artistic? Are you like an athlete? Tell me what your how you felt the difference between their intellectual prowess and your own personal leanings. So I can say I've always wanted to be artistic. I don't know that I really am, (laughs) but I've always wanted to be. Mm -hmm. They just were very, you know, would talk a lot about politics and social issues. And I just didn't feel quite like I had the same brain power or interest, not interest. I, I definitely have the interest but the same brain power to kind of have those deep kinds of very meaningful discussions. Mm-hmm. So it was more along those lines, I think. And, you know, it was always expected that I would go to college. Certainly I did. You know, or I even think of my choice of boyfriends. You know, my parents would have loved it had I married a professor or somebody <laughs> with more kind of those leanings. And that was never who I was attracted to. But how many kids do marry the people their parents want them to marry? Yeah, absolutely. So, right, I don't know right. that it really has anything to do with being adopted yeah, versus that's just true. who I am. Yeah. And yeah. it's kind of funny, too. I mean, even I've said this before with your biological children, sometimes you've got expectations for how they're going to be somehow in your mirror image. You know, I've said yeah. before, I grew up on hip-hop, soccer, and lacrosse, and my son has done literally zero of those things, and he's my blood, and it just goes to show that you can have expectations for your kids, and it doesn't matter whether they're adopted or biological to you. They're very unlikely to pursue the things that you've loosely planned in your mind for what their trajectory is going to be. It just it doesn't matter. The kid is going to be their own person, and it doesn't matter whether they're biological to you or not, so it's kind of funny. I couldn't agree more. And I, you know, I look, I have two sons, 19 months apart, same parents, same environment, and they are very different from one another. Mm -hmm. 
So mm-hmm. it's just kind of funny yeah. how that all works. Yeah. How, how did you and your brother get along in the house? Great. You know, he's six and a half years older than me. So by the time I was 12, he was out of the house. But great. And to this day, we have a very loving, supportive relationship. We live in different states and only see each other maybe once or twice a year and talk maybe once or twice, you know, once a month or once every two months. But we're, it's incredible. Like my father, our father died when he was 98 and he had dementia towards the end of his life. And my brother and I were always lockstep on what to do and what the best course of action was and that type of thing. So it's a great relationship. He and I've talked more probably in recent years about my adoption. And he goes, gosh, I just never even thought of you as being adopted. You were just my sister, <laughs> yeah. you know, and so he's he's kind of interested in some of this and curious. He's definitely very supportive of me in searching he his main thing is he doesn't want me to get hurt so yeah yeah so it's great when your loved ones love you the way they're supposed to to, they don't want you to be hurt by anything especially yeah anything relating to being adopted and especially if you guys just are brother and sister of course he would be naturally protective so that's really sweet yeah really cool yeah it is really sweet Mm -hmm. it is really sweet so tell me a little bit about your mom it looks like your mom died when she was relative when you were relatively young. Is that correct? Yeah, she died when she was 61 of lung cancer. So I was 25. She and I, we certainly loved each other and, and for the most part got along. I mean, it was kind of coming out of those teenage years where, of course, there's angst between mother and daughter at times. And so I feel bad that we never got to the place of being both being adults at the same time. But she was very loving, very smart. I think she felt more unease regarding my adoption. You know, I don't recall talking about it with her, but I must have at some point, probably in my late teens, because when I turned 21, she gave me a binder that had like the letters they had written for the adoption agency and others had written on their behalf and all the cards that came when they adopted me. And it was either spoken or implied, I can't remember, that this was kind of my beginning, was here in this book. And so at that point in time, I think I must have been thinking about searching because I remember my college boyfriend saying he would help me if I wanted. And then when she gave me that book, I said, no, I'm not searching. And a big piece of not searching was my loyalty to my adoptive parents, which I hear others talk about a lot as well. So it was a good relationship, but had some tension in the teen years, of course. But but overall, it was a good relationship. Yeah. yeah. You said something interesting, too, that you wish that you had had the opportunity for you both to be adults. There's definitely this thing. And you've said you have two boys in parenting yep. where, like, forgive my language, but they're just such a-holes as teenagers. I did it. My son does it sometimes. <laughs> like, you're just like, geez, what is wrong with you? And to get through that point and reach a place where you can really start to appreciate them for the person that they are. And you can look back and laugh like, God, you were just such an ass. And I can tell you, too. Yeah, there were some times when I was really pissed with you, too. And you can kind of laugh about it or whatever. There's something great about reaching that. You're getting past that that tough time and being an adult and they can express their pride for you and having come so far and you can show your appreciation to your parents for 
what it is that they provided that allowed you to get to these places where you've grown and started to prosper. And it is really a shame when you lose a parent and you don't get to share in some of that. So I can imagine. Yeah, I think it's probably tough. I think, yeah, that last piece really resonates with me, especially as I became a parent. I just wish she was around to say thank you for all that you really did teach me and, you know, to ask her advice at times with things that were happening with my kids and that piece, especially I miss. Yeah. Yeah. And they can see, they can be proud of the time and effort that they put in, you know, this parenting is like, it's a thankless job for a long time and you sacrifice a lot to make sure that your children are hopefully going to do better than you ever did. Right. We always look for our children to do better than we ever yeah, did. Sure and, so. yeah, yeah. And so for them to not actually get to see that, it really does kind of sting a little bit when you lose them too early, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry yeah. for that. I'm lucky I had my dad for so long and I was totally a daddy's girl too. And yeah. he, I think working with college students, he just had a, a young mindset also. And so he was very easy to talk to and relate to and things like that. So Mm -hmm. I'm lucky I had him for as long as I did. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's also interesting. You said what he's 98 when he passed, but he had dementia. Yeah. 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 You know, when your parents get older and you, for lack of better words, start to lose them, they, you know, my mom, I lost her to paranoid schizophrenia and dementia. And it's just so challenging to see the physical embodiment of the person you grew up with but they're not fully present mentally. It's just such a challenging thing to witness, right? They say things that seem weird and odd and out of character, and they're not able to do some of the most simple things. And it's just such an interesting sort of dichotomy of this amazing person that they used to be when they were younger. And then that person has just kind of faded away. And all that's left is their earthly body, but you are in a very much in a caregiver role to them. That's also an interesting part of life too, right? It totally is. And it, you know, I also think of the grieving process because by the time he died, I think there was kind of relief. Mm. And I thought about the grieving and thought I've been grieving for years as he was slowly slipping away. Yes. Yeah. You know, so, so the grief isn't as shocking at the point, or at least it wasn't for me at the point it happened because I'd already been grieving for so long and it was just a sense of relief to that. Yeah. Yeah. You feel like you've lost them already. Right. I'm, yeah. Yeah. That resonates with me that when I was watching my mother's slow demise, that it's going to sound awful, but you just want it to be over. Not because you want them to go, but because you want their pain and suffering and confusion and frustration with their inability not to do the things they know they used to be able to do to be over. Like, you know, I'm watching my mother-in-law right now and she's struggling a little bit with language after a brain infection. And yeah. Yeah. And so she's really, she knows what she wants to say and she gets so frustrated that she's not able to express herself. And then periodically She'll want to do something that came from her prior, more independent life, and she's not able to execute that thing. And it's just so frustrating to watch this woman who used to be so super independent struggle through her life quite a bit to try to execute on little things. And it sounds like you kind of dealt with a bit of that, too, with your dad. It's just really rough to watch. Yeah, it is. It is really rough to watch. Nina thinks her dad was always curious about her origin story. 
In his younger days, after her mom died, Nina's father gave her some court documents showing her birth name and the change to her adoptive name. Nina's dad told her that he thought she was the product of an affair where someone had been married when she was conceived. He committed to helping Nina search for her birth family if she wanted to do so. Nina said that while she appreciated his support, she thinks it was too close to the time of her mother's death and she just wasn't ready to launch her search. Still, the document gave Nina her birth name, but the mystery was whether her last name on paper was her birth mother's maiden name, her married name, or her birth father's last name. I was curious what Nina felt when she saw herself on paper, documented with a different name than the identity she has today. I like my name better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In all honesty, I like I like my name better. The, the name I was given at birth is Cheryl Diane, and the name I grew up with is, is Nina. Mm-hmm. They had obviously put in for adoption, but I arrived quickly, and they didn't have a name picked out for me. And so they kind of went through trying out different names, and they decided my mom wanted to name me Nina, and they decided she'd be calling me the most so she could have her way. <laughs> she called me <laughs> Nina. But she would be calling you the most. That's pretty funny. And exactly, how true, right? Yeah. That's hilarious. Yep, how true is exactly right. So. so this was at a time not too long after your mother's passing. And it sounds like you said you just generally had some loyalty to your family. Tell me a little bit about your thoughts in terms of receiving this document and what search would even look like one day. Well, I don't remember a lot other than just being grateful to my father for sharing that information with me. And for being so supportive, and I could tell he was curious. I think besides the loyalty to my family, I didn't want to interrupt my birth mother's life. I didn't know what her husband know about me, what her kids know about me, what was that period of her life like. I kind of didn't want to raise all that. The main reason I would want to find her at that point was more to say thank you. I've had a great life and thank you. That's my recollection of my thoughts at that time. I mean, I was always interested, obviously, of who I look like and who I took after and what their interests were, that type of thing. In 1987, Nina's mom had been deceased for a few years. Nina had written to her adoption agency for non-identifying information, and she placed her name in some registries to try to be connected with her biological family. Nina admitted she probably thought about the possibilities for reunion more than she recalls to have actually taken those steps back then. At 27 years old, Nina was curious if anyone was looking for her. Her non-identifying information shared some background on her heritage and the fact that both of her parents were 22 years old when she was born. It also revealed that her birth mother had married someone other than her birth father a few months before Nina was born. She said, it put a whole new twist on how she thought about her origin story because this man who married her birth mother, a woman who would have been showing she was pregnant, was with her mother through her birth and placement for adoption. She said she thought my biological father and her would marry, but that that did not happen. Oh, that's fascinating. And so she married this other person. So I don't know whether they had a relationship and then she kind of strayed or whether she met him after she was pregnant. I don't know any of that. Gotcha. Yeah. So it's interesting that you, just two years later, 
were then interested in trying to find your biological relatives, trying to go into registries and things like that. And I always think that it's impossible to ignore when someone comes forth with your birth name. It's not just, hey, do you want to talk about your adoption? And you're like, nah, I don't think so right now. And then it's over. This piece of information that your adoptive father shares with you, that you, Nina, used to be named Cheryl, and this is a little bit of information about your birth mother and father, whatever the history was that he gave you, you can't put that toothpaste back in the tube, right? It's so interesting and important and foundational to who you were. It's hard to just ignore. So I find it fascinating that two years later, you were desirous of a search, and you might not have been had he not presented that to you. You know what I mean? Yeah. And well, I think I had been because because remembering that my boyfriend in college said, if you want to search, I'll help you. Mm-hmm. And I would kind of said, when I hit 21, I'll make up my mind. And then my mom gave me that binder and I said, nope, I'm not searching. Uh, so I do think it was playing in there, yeah. but I don't I just don't remember a lot about it. Mm-hmm. And part of it may just be my age and how I've painted my own history for myself in a way. Yeah. Well, and also, too, it it may also be true that you pushed it down for real. Like, when you're not ready to deal with something, you can just push it aside a lot of times very easily. And it may have been that that's exactly what you did when some folks said, do you want to? And you said, no, I'm good. And and I I did it myself. People would ask me, do you ever want to find your biological parents? And I'm like, I've got two parents. I don't need two more parents. And I just I didn't think twice about it. I agree. And I think later on in life, too. I met someone who, who's, I think, birth mother found him, and he made the comment, now I have to work this whole other family into my schedule. And I remember thinking, oh, man, I don't want that. I got so much vacation time. I got to do my in-laws. I got to do my own family. Like, I'd like to do myself and my friends. I, well, I don't want a whole other family, Yeah. if that even worked out that way that uh, time. Nina said every time she moved, she would update the adoption reunion registry to have her new residence. So clearly, the possibility of reunion was playing in her head. But the registries never yielded any results. In 1997, Nina was 37 years old, and she was pregnant with her first son, at which time she wrote to her adoption agency again to get her non-identifying information. She told them she lost the first summary document the agency had given her, hoping that her ruse would lead them to re-summarize her non-identifying information, and perhaps shares something new that was not revealed the first time around. Not much was different in the second set of documents, except that she learned that her mother was of a relatively serious nature and was pretty controlling. And I remember running into my boss. It's not my fault because I was pretty controlling at work. <laughs> like, it's not my fault. It's Cheryl. Cheryl's coming out. Yeah, yeah. right, right. So, That's pretty funny. You get to assign an alter ego to this personality exactly. trait. That's funny. Exactly. And for a while, I would do that. I'd be like, Cheryl's, Cheryl's coming out now. So right. You don't want to mess with Cheryl. Yeah. Exactly. Don't be messing <laughs> with Cheryl. In 2006... Nina got more serious about wanting to search. She had two small children, and she wanted some medical information. One of her sons had a peanut allergy, and she wondered where that originated. Nina also highlighted some of the other adoptee stories she's heard here on the podcast, where adoptees remark how impactful it was for them to have children, and to see how much her children looked like her. When Nina's first son was born, 
her dad sent her a picture of herself when she was younger, drawing a heartwarming connection to how her son looked like herself back in the day. And then when my younger son was born, I remember one of the relatives on my husband's side saying, Nina, he looks so much like you. And then I remember my mother-in-law saying, no, he doesn't. He looks like our side of the family. And, oh, I had to go take a walk because, you know, clearly she wasn't saying that to be mean or with any thought pattern around being adopted and how important it is for me to have someone look like me. And I felt like, oh, she's stealing it away from me. Mm -hmm. I was mad and also trying to reason like she's not doing this for that purpose by any means. She just truly thinks he looks like her side of the family and he, and he does. But people also tell me he looks a lot like me even now that he's grown. Yeah, but you do want to own that, right? I mean, every parent I totally want to own right? that. Every yeah. single parent, regardless, wants to own that their child <laughs> looks like them. And Absolutely. It's especially magnified when someone is adopted and another person tries to take that away from them. You feel really yep. possessive over it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I certainly did. So, and when I was 46 then, I... I hired a confidential intermediary through the adoption agency in Michigan to locate and contact my birth mother. And I wrote her a letter basically saying thank you and then giving her information about me and, you know, questions and things like that. And the social worker told me it'd probably take three to six months to get any information back. And within two weeks, she called me and she had to leave me a voicemail and said, it's not what you hope for. And so I immediately went to, oh, my birth mother's already passed. And then when I spoke with her, she said, no, she, she is alive. And she called back immediately to this vague letter that was sent and said, I expected this to happen and it happened in the past and that's where I want to leave it. And that was like it. And the social worker quick tried to say she wants to know if there's medical information. And my birth mother said no. And the social worker let her know I had a letter and a picture on file if she ever wanted it. And I don't know whether she's ever gotten it. Oh, wow. So that was like. She wanted to leave your birth in her past. Yeah. And so that was like a, that was like, it felt like a gut punch. Like it took my air away. And I think my first kind of reaction was I was just in disbelief. Like, I'm a nice person. I can't believe you don't want to get to know me. And I think the next feeling all in quick succession was, you know, kind of incredulous and hurt. Like it's been over 40 years. Get over it. Not a very feeling comment for sure. And then I felt really sad and guilty because, again, one of the reasons I never searched was I didn't want to disrupt her life. And here I felt like I totally just did that. And I felt really bad for that. And I still do, but I still bounce through multiple emotions when I think about that. And when the, the adoption agency or the social worker then sent me an article about birth mothers, and that was very informative for me. And then I read that book, The Girls Who Went Away. And that really gave me a new perspective and really helped me feel much more compassion and empathy toward what she probably went through. And so even now, you know, I'll kind of get mad, I'll get hurt when I think about it. I try to move toward empathy and kindness because I am not in her shoes. And clearly this would be a big part of her life. And I don't take it personally, though. I never thought she rejected me. It's more, it was the situation was so hard. I just happened to be the kind of the product of it. Yeah. But I don't feel like 
I'm personally to blame. I had no say in any of this. So I try not to, but I think for the most part, I really don't take it personally. That's great. Um, but nonetheless, it's it's very disappointing. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. And, and, and this is an important point, too, is that there's a lot of adoptees who will say, I can feel two things at once, right? I can empathize yeah. with her and how much she went through such that she might not want to be in touch with me. But I can also yeah. be hurt by that desire to not be in touch with me at the same yeah. time, right? They can coexist. Yes, and, yes that's um, a very good point. Yeah, it, there's a lot of that duality of feelings in adoption, right? There, to there move is a ton to, of that. Yeah, to, to move to sort of your adoptive parents. I can love them immensely and and be so appreciative of the life that we've shared together. And I can be curious about who I'm biologically related to. Yep. Right? You can yep. have both of those things coexist in your heart. And there's nothing wrong with that. So it's that's really interesting that you sort of point that out. And I want to go back to also the girls who went away. You know, Ann Fessler's book was so powerful in both doing what we're doing here, telling the real story of adoption, but also so important for so many adoptees to get that true insight and build the empathy that many of us needed to understand what transpired before we were even able to make decisions for ourselves. There were adults who were trying to make decisions for these women. There were young women who yeah. had to make decisions for themselves, and there was a whole system in place that was guiding them for better or for worse through this adoption process and putting pressure on in ways that we couldn't even imagine because we did not live as adults in that era. We can only look back on the stories from it. And so that book was really, really powerful for me and my empathy. And it sounds like as well for you. And I'm glad you got your hands Absolutely. on it and ingest it. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I've read it a couple of times now and it is, it's very powerful and just my heart breaks for those women. Mm -hmm. So yeah. how did you get over that gut punch? I just, I moved through it really quickly, which also makes me think, did I stuff it down? And, you know, is there more in there I should really kind of dig at through therapy or something? But I just thought, you know, my life hasn't changed. I still got the same great life I had before. And so I just kind of focused there. But it plays with me all the time. And moving forward now, a couple years ago, when I was 61, my dad had died by then and I retired. My kids were either off to school or living on their own. And as part of a way to kind of occupy myself in that creative streak, I think I want to have, I decided I wanted to write a novel. And I was going to write this novel called The Many Lives of Cheryl's Mom. And I was going to make, make up stories about what the heck happened here. And as I started writing that, though, I get really one of my problems with creative writing is I get stuck in reality. And so I started searching and I had done 23andMe a few years before that, but it didn't really yield anything. I mean, the closest was maybe like a 3% match or something. So because I had that name, I went back to that and found my name and started Google researching Michigan people with that last name and women who would have been born about the year my mom had been born. And I pinpointed one person and then I started digging in on her and lo and behold, everything matched up to the non-identifying information I had had. Wow. 
And so I figured I knew who, who she was. And the interesting thing was she grew up in Indiana. She only moved to Michigan in a small town in Michigan when she got married. So then I started trying to figure out who could my father be. And then I decided to do Ancestry.com. And when that came back, I had a 26% match. And I could see that it was on my paternal side. And I could also see relatives on my maternal side that would be in the family, her family tree. So I knew I had hit on the right woman. And now I had information to help me try to figure out who my birth father was. I could not for the life of me figure out who that 26% was. It went by initials and the count was managed by someone else. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, I kind of disregarded that other than to use the public tree that that person had associated with their account. And there I was able to narrow in on someone who was still living, who matched all the non-identifying information I had on him. And he was like 22 when I was born. He had a brother who was 13, a sister who was seven. Those are not common age gaps. And then his father was a hotel clerk. I could see that on his birth certificate that I found, you know, in the records on Ancestry and then like newspaper articles and things like that. So I felt very confident I had the right man. And then I decided to hire another confidential intermediary because having had my first experience, I wanted a buffer and I wanted someone who was used to having these conversations with people. And so, again, I went to my adoption agency, and at that time, everything was centralized, and it went through the courts in Michigan, and a confidential intermediary was assigned. And I showed her all my research. She said, it looks like you probably have the right person. I want to pull your file, though, so I can verify it. And she pulled it, and she said, what name do you have for your mom? And I gave it to her, and she said, you're correct. And I, she said, what name do you have for your dad? And she said, you are correct. Wow. And in my legal adoption record, it was actually my birth mother's husband listed as my legal father. But in the notes that the social worker took at the time of her surrendering me, she listed my birth father's name. Oh, that's really interesting. So your research and your DNA connection were ultimately what provided the confirming clues that you yep. had found the right people. Wow. Yep. Hmm. How did that feel for you? Is that that's kind of a moment of pride, isn't it? Oh, total pride. Dancing <laughs> around the house. I figured it out. I figured, you know, calling my friends. I figured it out. I know who these people are. And then, you know, you start the stalking on Facebook and LinkedIn and anywhere you can to try to find pictures. And interestingly, my biological father has a profile on Find a Grave because where he talks about doing genealogical research on his family tree and that he helps others with theirs. So I thought, okay, my birth mother had said they had planned to get married. That didn't happen. So even if he didn't know about me, he would know her and they had a relationship. And then I figured if nothing else, he likes genealogy and he will be interested in knowing me because I'm part of his family tree, mm -hmm. obviously. Yeah. Well, the confidential intermediary called him. They talked for over an hour. She read a letter that I had written to him. And after several back and forths with me kind of on the sidelines, getting clued in or giving more information, in the end, he said, I don't believe in DNA. 
I don't have any memory of this woman and I don't want to revisit my past and I reject this theory. Wow. And that was that. Are you yeah. serious? I'm sorry. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. This is somebody who has a clear interest, as you've said, in the family yeah. history. And he says, yeah. I don't believe in DNA and I don't want to go back to that. I yeah. mean, wow. Yeah. That's That sounds yeah. like I only want to investigate the pieces of my past that I'm interested in. Yeah. And for a while during these back and forths, he said, I might be interested in some limited contact because I'd be interested in what she knows about my family, what she's learned. But that clearly wasn't compelling enough. I think the whole thing freaked him out. I mean, he was 84 at the time he got contacted. So I kind of get it. I'm certainly not the person I was in my 20s, but I own my past. And that's what kind of makes me mad, like just to own it, like, (laughs) you know, and that you don't believe in DNA. That's that's where the whole thing falls apart. Everything else I could be okay with. Not okay. That's not quite the right word, but Part of me, though, was like proud, like, oh, he's got critical thinking skills at 84. Excellent. This Mm -hmm. is a good sign for me that I'll still have it together as we go down the road. Yeah. But um, yeah, that's funny. I did the same thing. You know, when I found my biological father. Yeah, I was, you know, he picked us up from the airport and he was maybe 86 or 87. Like he drove to the airport, walked in himself, no walker, clearly a thinker when I met him. And, and have since spoken with him multiple times, visited multiple times, and you do do that. You look at that person that you're meeting as a proxy for what your potential is in the future, yes. right? Yeah, it's, yes, it's like totally. peering into the future self and going, okay, good. I'm seeing some good physical capability, check. I'm seeing some good mental <laughs> capabilities, that's great. <laughs> and you start feeling real good about your future, right? I love it. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's really funny how we do that. And also, while I was researching this guy and doing all my stalking, he has a daughter and a son from his marriage. And I I look so much like his daughter. And so, you know, and he received pictures of me. I sent them to the the social worker and she sent them on. But that clearly wasn't convincing anyway. But Mm -hmm. So or you've never just he wanted to put it in a box and deny it. Yeah. So you've never been in touch with him then? Not directly, no. Nina has experienced adoption reunion rejections from her birth mother and her birth father. But recall that she had one fairly close genetic relation on ancestry DNA, 26%. When I asked if she ever figured out who that match was, Nina said something clicked for her that reinvigorated her desire to investigate who that person could be. She was listening to another podcast where someone said, don't be somebody else's secret. And that resonated with me at that moment. And so about an hour later, I messaged the person who manages that account on Ancestry and they messaged back within a half an hour and it was her husband. And we share our biological father and he was also put up for adoption. He is three years younger than me. And so he was born outside of this guy's marriage too. So this guy's got two, at least two of us who are out here, who are not part of his marriage. That's interesting. So do you think, Did do you have any idea whether this half-brother of yours found your biological father before you did? Because I'm curious to know if your biological father did not want to meet you because he had already had this experience. I don't believe they ever reached out. His So my half-brother's name is Rob, and his wife is a professional genealogist. 
So it was that public tree that she had put together that led me to figure out who my father was. So they figured out who he was. But from my understanding through a couple conversations with him, he has no interest in this man. Oh, really? Rob has no yeah, interest he, in his in your birth father. Right. I think his wife is also adopted. And my memory is they don't have any interest in that man either. Like, I think they think they were cads, for lack of a better word. Cad? Cads, like, you know, just philanderers. Huh. Gotcha. Yeah. That's so, yeah. So he has got five brothers older than him through his mother. She bore all of them through a marriage and was later divorced and then had him and gave him up for adoption. He's met all five brothers, and I think he's even developed some good friendships with one or two of them. Mm, interesting. Really um, interesting. Wow. Yeah, so I've talked a couple times with Rob. He seems like a really nice guy. I don't feel an immediate connection with him. We live in different states also. And I think I, I'm more interested in a way of meeting my other half siblings from my mother's and father's marriages because they knew my mother and my father, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. They've and got that's the real connection knowledge. I want to know. Yeah. Yeah. Right. They've got experiences. They've got intimate knowledge. They can tell you some truths and maybe yeah. what some of what they remember maybe if they've overheard anything, but also just like generally what it was like to live with these folks, right? And you'll get exactly. pieces of yourself from those stories, yes. right? That's what I'm thinking. Nina thinks perhaps if she and Rob lived closer together, they might forge more of a relationship. Nina mentioned before that she had an interest in drafting a fictional recount of her birth mother's story, but she hasn't fully fleshed the book out yet. She said the portions she has shared with her friends have received positive feedback, and they've encouraged Nina to keep writing. At the time we spoke, Nina had sent a certified letter to her oldest maternal half-sister to let the woman know she exists. In the letter, Nina shared some of her experience reaching out to their mom, that she's unsure about reaching out to their mother again based on that past experience, so Nina chose to contact her half-sister instead. The older I get, the more important my adoption and finding out information is to me. Why is that? I don't know. I think part of it is both my parents have passed. I think I have just more time on my hands to think and do. And time is getting short. If I'm going to find out answers, it's going to need to be soon. Because they're getting older and the answers will vanish with them. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So I have heard nothing back from that half-sister. I know the letter was received last Saturday, so it's been a week. So I'm just kind of sitting on pins and needles and waiting to see if if I get anything. I'm kind of thinking I'm, I may not, given my, my track record. Your history, yeah. And I feel bad. I originally was going to wait until my biological mother had passed and then reach out to her daughters, but I decided to do it now. Go back so, to that, don't be anybody's secret. What was it that resonated with you that made you want to reach out to this woman? Well, I struggle with this. There's a part of me that believes people should own own their history. And I'm a secret on her side, but clearly I am here. And I don't lead a secret life, you know. And I wish she would acknowledge me, I guess. 
well, I wish she'd talk to me. I wish she'd tell me what happened. I wish she'd tell me about her parents. I wish, I wish she'd share some recipe, family recipes with me. I don't know. You know, there's all kinds of things I'd like to know. Yeah. I don't think I'm going to get much of any of that, if anything. And it makes me sad for her. It makes me sad she's going to take this with her. I mean, clearly her husband knew about me because he was there when I was born. And apparently she kept me with her in the hospital for three or four days until it was time to leave the hospital. And that's when she contacted the social workers to put me up for adoption. Oh, wow. So I wonder if she struggled with it or was it they lived in a small town where he grew up. Was it his mother saying, I don't know, or maybe she was worried I wouldn't be treated well. I don't know. Yeah, it's impossible to know. know. Yeah. Yeah. But I hear what you're saying, this piece where you're a secret in someone's life, but you're here and you have you have lived a rich and full life. Yeah. You know, that does deserve acknowledgement. You feel like for you, the past is in the past and you want to help heal whatever she has been through. So that I would love can, to help her heal. Yeah, or move through together. To heal. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I would love for her to heal, I guess, even if it isn't with me in it. And, and maybe she has. And this is part of her healing. I don't know. I have such gratitude, not only for her and the decisions she made. I mean, I have had a great life. And I, each each kind of downturn, I think, how lucky am I? I was raised in a great family. I have had a lot of experiences I wouldn't have otherwise had. And I know I am loved and was loved. And I believe she loved me too. And so it really brings me back to that, just mm. a feeling of gratitude and and feeling very, very lucky. I like that a lot, Nina. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah. Well, I definitely wish you luck with the letter that you've sent out recently. I mean, gosh, just a week ago, she received this. This is really incredible that you have sort of resurrected your desire to to make this connection. I hope it's received positively. I mean, it doesn't sound like you're holding out a whole lot of hope, but still, to have other avenues to pursue is, is a good thing. It's like when you're driving through traffic and you see all the brake lights ahead of you and you go, crap, what am I going to do? And immediately you realize like, oh, I could turn here and I could probably get around this. The notion that you've got other avenues to pursue with children on her side is it does hold some promise because your life, like you said, you don't deserve to be a secret and you're not going anywhere. So it is important to you to try to get some information out of them. And it could be healing for them, too, because they a lot of times when the children are confronted with the secrets of the parents the children will Mm -hmm. go oh now this makes sense mom was always so weird around your birthday or whatever the thing is you know there's always there's often something where they'll go you know i never could figure out why when i talked about wanting an older sister she would like clam up or cry or there's always some thing that the children are able to finally connect and i hope that you're able to hear some of that about your existence within her past. You know what I mean? Yeah, I totally know what you mean. I I feel that too. You know, and the, this whole thing just brings such, I think we talked about at the very beginning, how there's just kind of opposing thoughts that can exist at the same time. And one of the ones I have is, 
what makes my right to know or my desire to know more important than her her right to anonymity mm-hmm. and secrecy? I struggle with that one all the time. And I also think, you know, it's not all about me. You know, I mean, there were my adoptive parents and clearly my biological families and their children. But also I think of my brother. I'm his only sister, and here he hears me talking about finding five other half-siblings. What, what, what must that be like? Yeah. You know, that would be kind of unsettling, I think, if I was on the other end. True. But, um, but you've also said very clearly, like, how much you guys got along, how much you guys love each other, yeah. how you've never sort of seen each other as not brother and yeah. sister. And I hope that that understanding between you that he is your brother, but that you do have other siblings out there will make him okay with your search you know what i mean but yeah. I, I hear what you're saying it can be unsettling yeah. for folks yeah. and i think it's and clearly on us he, to make them feel comfortable go ahead yeah and clearly a piece of that is he and i have such a shared history yeah. and i don't have that with any of these people yeah at that's all. exactly so, right that's exactly yeah. right the so that's huge that counts for a lot yeah yeah very good all right, Nina. Thank you yeah. so much for being Damon, here. Damon, thank you. Of course. I really my appreciate pleasure. your podcast. I wish you the best you, of luck. you are great. Thank, thank you. Thanks. Okay. Take care. All right, then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, it's me. It warmed my heart to hear that Nina's adoption experience was filled with love and acceptance, and they all felt like family when she was growing up. She said she could feel differences between her family and herself, but that they all just loved one another. Hearing that Nina experienced both maternal and paternal adoption reunion rejections was really tough. When we search, we hope that someone will turn up that wants to know us, take us back in just a little bit, and whom we can feel connected to in some way. But at the time of our chat, that had not happened for Nina. I checked in with her via email to see whatever happened after her certified letter to her maternal half-sister was delivered. Nina replied, All is going well with my half-sister, Diane. We email weekly, and I plan to visit her next year. She sent me a photo of our mother, and I definitely see a resemblance to her. Nina went on to say that she's been doing genealogy. Diane is interested in what Nina has found and she's excited that she may have found roots in American history that will allow her to apply to be in the Daughters of the American Revolution. Nina concluded her email reply to me with this. I feel so much more grounded since connecting with Diane. I didn't realize how untethered I felt until now. I'm Damon Davis, and I hope you found something in Nina's journey that inspired you, validates your feelings about wanting to search, or motivates you to have the strength along your journey to learn. Who am I really?